0: Let's take our Bibles this morning. It's good to be back in the study of the Word, right? Let's take our Bibles, turn to the book of Numbers, fourth book of the Bible, Numbers chapter 33. I kind of um, happened across this passage while I was studying and researching something else, and as soon as I read it, um, the Spirit just really impressed upon my heart that we should study it. Isn't it awesome when you're studying the Bible and you... Um, kind of get an insight into the word that you didn't expect. That that a word or phrase just kind of jumps off the page while you're studying and you realize, I've never seen that before. That's what happened when I was um, looking at Numbers chapter 33. And as I started to study it more in depth, I I realized how uh, wealthy its application was. How deep it was. How much there was here for us. So I want to just look at four verses this morning, Numbers 33, 1 to 4. I I'm going to encourage you to take some notes. There's some good things the Lord wants to teach us here, but let me give you a little bit of context. The context is that Moses is laying out kind of a summation of everything that has happened to them uh, since they left Egypt. Now, Considering Israel's pattern of forgetfulness, shall we call it, um, and their, their lack of praise, their lack of thanks, their inconsistency of their, of their gratitude, it's important that they need to constantly revisit how God has helped them and how God has blessed them. And, and he specifically mentions, Moses does, every stop that they've made along the way because he, he wants them to understand for the last 40 years God's been with us even though we rebelled, even though we built that golden calf at Sinai, and and thousands of people died, and there's been grumbling and complaining and, and constant kind of bickering about the leading of the Lord, I want you to remember every single place that we have made camp. And he does that as a as a precursor for laying out how each tribe's going to occupy the promised land. Because when they go in, there's specificity that God wants to give them about where each tribe's going to occupy. And, and another reason for that, I think, knowing Israel, is that um, people can get very territorial, right? People can start to say, well, I want the better land, like Lot did with Abraham. And, and I think it's, it's just amazing to me how quickly we can fall into self-oriented thinking how quickly we can fall back to what's in it for me. And when we lose that perspective of how blessed we are and we allow our pride to, to start to creep in and we start to say, well, what's my right? What do I deserve? What do I get out of this? Because maybe you think your life's been unfair, or, or you look at other people, or social media is kind of depressing you because you, you see it, and you say, well, everybody's life seems better than mine, and there are flowers blooming in the south, and we canceled church in April because of snow, and that's not right, and, and right? That happens. We start to get complaining, and we're feeling ungrateful, and we just, that kind of damages our heart. So as Israel gets closer to their destination, Moses makes sure to tell them, look, we've got to review the facts of what's happened because we've got to think correctly. We're about to take on a challenge, and we studied this months ago when we studied Joshua. We're about to take on a challenge. We're about to go into new land that God's provided for us, that he promised all the way back to Abraham. So, so as we're going in, we have to have the right mindset because if we don't, this is going to be a disaster. So look at what he tells them. Just four verses, and then we'll focus on three phrases that are going to lead us to some applications. Look at Numbers 33.1. These are the journeys of the sons of Israel by which they came out from the land of Egypt by their armies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses recorded their starting places according to their journeys by the command of the Lord. And these are their journeys according to their starting places. They journeyed from Ramesses in the first month On the 15th day of the first month, on the next day after the Passover, the sons of Israel started out boldly in the sight of all the Egyptians. While the Egyptians were burying their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, the Lord had also executed judgments on their gods. Now, as I read that, again, that phrase in verse 4 just jumped out at me. And I started to explore down into it because the Spirit gives very specific details here. Every adjective, every adverb that's here, especially in verses 3 to 4, is significant. There's nothing accidental here because the details that the Holy Spirit gives us are designed to teach us. Now, as we've said before, when we study the Word of God, right, we have to be very clear to look at every detail the Spirit includes. Don't rush through your study. It's better to take 30 minutes in one verse and dig out all the truth that's there than to spend one minute on 30 verses. Because the scripture is deep and it's rich and there's a lot here. And the spirit is intentional about what he includes because he wants us to know that there's insight there. So look at the details here. It says that Israel left the city of Ramesses. Now that's in the Nile Delta. If you know your geography, you know that the Nile River comes up to the Mediterranean and kind of spreads out like a fan. On well, the right bottom side of the fan was the city of Ramesses. It's now the present city of Canṭīr. Now, why is that important? It's important because the Lord is telling us that's their starting spot. He also tells us the day that they left. It says they left in the first month on the 15th day, which was also the next day after Passover. Now, we've studied... Uh, Israel and the Old Testament of Passover enough to know that that was the time when they had taken the blood of the spotless lamb, they had put it on the doorpost as a symbol of the cross, a precursor, an advanced picture of what we just celebrated, the cross. So they put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, and that was a covering for their sin. So when the angel came and passed over their house, he would save them from judgment. Now, we'll study that more in a couple minutes, but at this point, let's be very aware that what they had experienced the night before was still very fresh on their minds. This is not just some random day in the middle of the year. This was the 15th day of the first month, the day after Passover, and that had been the precipitator, Passover was the precipitator for their release because... Pharaoh saw all the death that happened around Egypt, all the firstborn sons that have died, and he knows that that those are the sons that were not covered by the blood, and he says, it's time for you to go right now. The deliverance of the Lord was immediate. Didn't take days, didn't take weeks, didn't take months. They were released from bondage as soon as God's salvation came. And in the same way, what happens when we trust Christ? There's not a delay, there's not a time frame. God doesn't have to work it out. When you pray and say, God, I repent of my sins and I trust you, salvation is immediate. Deliverance is immediate, freedom is immediate. We're exonerated of sin and guilt and we're freed for eternity. So this is what happened. Look back at the text. They started out of Egypt, out of the city of Ramesses, on the day after Passover, on their way to the Promised Land. But there are four other important details that the Spirit includes here that that give us insight into the hand of God. Both in terms of His grace and in terms of how He holds people accountable for their rejection of sin. So let's see these four phrases. If you underline, underline them in your Bible. If you don't, just write them down. Because we want to take each one in just a second. But let's, let's just establish what they are. Number one, verse three. It says, they started out boldly. Number two, also in verse three. It says, they started out boldly in the sight of all the Egyptians. Okay, so number one, they started out boldly. Number two, they did that in the sight of all the Egyptians. Number three, verse four, they did it while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn. We'll explore that in a minute. And then it says, fourth, that the Lord had struck the Egyptians down and executed judgment on their gods. Okay? You got the 4? Started out boldly. They did it in the sight of all the Egyptians. They did it while they were burying their firstborn and they did it after the Lord had struck down their firstborn and executed judgment on their gods. Now, let's see why those are so important. First of all, verse 3. It says they started out boldly. The Israelites did not leave in the middle of the night. They did not sneak out while nobody was looking. The Lord had them go out in daylight in full view of their captors. And it was abundantly clear, there was no mistaking the fact that they, as they left Egypt, that they were not mourning their firstborn sons being killed. It never really hit me that way until I studied this passage this week because as they left, they were walking out fully intact. Their whole family was here. They had been slaves for hundreds of years and now the whole family was going and as they walked out in the daylight all the firstborn sons of the Israelites had been untouched. Now don't miss that detail because it's very important. The images and sounds of the night before were still very vivid, because remember, this was the day after Passover, and as they're walking out, they're full of joy, they're full of gratitude, they've seen deliverance firsthand, they're now being freed, and they're not gloating, they're not taunting, they're not going, hey, we're finally rid of you. There's a humility there, there's a quietness there, even though it's two million people. The quietness because they recognize that it's only by the hand of God that this has happened. And as they're walking, they're thinking about the night before as the little lamb had its throat cut. As the blood poured out and they took the blood with hyssop and they they put it on the doorposts of the house. And then they waited in the house all together with nervous anticipation, just waiting, when is the angel going to come over? And then there was the sense, I truly believe, of the Spirit of God passing over. They may not have heard him. They may not have seen him. But they could feel the wave of death move through the city. And they could hear the wailing in Egyptian households of the sons dying. I guarantee you they would never, ever forget that night. So as they're walking out, there's a humbling reality. There's a humbling awe that it's only by the grace of God that they have been covered and they have been saved. And it's only because of the grace of God that they are free. Now we celebrate communion about once a month. And we shouldn't have to be reminded, well, once a month, oh, boy, that's right. We're coming to communion. Yeah, the sacrifice of Jesus and the blood of Christ that was spilled out. Boy, I I need to be grateful for that. That should be an every morning thing. That should be an every day at noon thing. That should be an every night as you sit down at dinner thing that God has redeemed us, that Christ has stood in our place, that we have been delivered from bondage. We've been freed from the, from the, from the weight of sin by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If that doesn't stay fresh in our hearts every day, we're going to fall back into the trap that Israel did because how quickly did they forget the mercy of God? How quickly were they, were they complaining and griping? But, but at this point, notice, look back at the text. There's no hesitancy. They're, they're not holding back. Wow, well, we, we miss our old homes, and what are we going to do? And this is uncertain, and where are we going? And No, there's no complaining at this point. There's no Lot's wife behavior at this point. We're free. We get to go forward. We get, we get to we get to. Live now, not in bondage. We're delivered. God has worked. We're freed. We're going to the promise of God. Why would there be any delay? Why would there be any hesitation to move out of bondage and to live in freedom? Now, we could apply the same question to us. Why would there be any delay every single day? Why would we even give it a thought to go back to bondage? to go back to our old life that was enslaved to sin, why would we not just keep walking forward with our heads high, full of joy, full of gratitude that God has delivered us? So number one, notice that word, they started out boldly. Second, would you see that they started out boldly in the sight of all the Egyptians? Now, as we're going to see in a minute, that's a very powerful statement. But let's see another important truth before we look at that. We are called to live out our faith boldly, unashamed, confident and strong. We are never called to hide our faith. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 6, don't hide your light. Let your light shine before men. A city set on a hill, which in Galilee, you could see a light on a hillside in a house miles and miles and miles away. So he says, don't, don't cover it under a bushel. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your fathers in heaven. So we're never called to to live our faith in secret. We're also never called to live our faith in little private cloisters that are protected. We are called to be personally set apart to holiness, but not excluded from our culture. In fact, two weeks ago, we studied this, right? We studied the Great Commission, which says go out into the world. Go and be part of this so you can influence culture spiritually, so you can tell other people about the good news. So this church always has to be a place that is open to all people, that we are reaching all people for the gospel. We're not white. We're not middle class. We're not suburban. We're not a certain denomination. We are a church for everybody. We're a church that needs to reach everybody. And we have the priority of showing and talking about God's love and teaching the word and raising up disciples and training children and calling on the Lord and worshiping and praising the Lord without any shame, ministering to people. That's the goal of the church. We come to the harbor so we prepare so we can go out into the world. And that starts with our personal lives. We are called to live boldly for the Lord in the sight of a lost culture. Now, that cannot mean arrogance. That cannot mean judgmentalism and criticism and condescension. It can't mean flaunting our freedom uh, by continuing in sin. Those actions kill the effectiveness of our witness. We have to be marked individually in a church by confident faith and by holiness and by joy and contentment and conviction and consistency and a lack of longing for that old life that we've been freed from so we can live in our new life. Every day humbled by the grace of God. Every day humbled by the fact of of God's heart for us and by his sacrifice for us and then taking the word out to his people and, and to people that don't know Christ and telling them, God loves you so much. The cause of Christ has been damaged so much by, by harsh judgmentalism. And listen, I know it's fearful. I read an article yesterday that, that the question was, how long am I going to be allowed to be a Christian? Frightening article. The culture is increasingly coming against Christianity. The culture increasingly is repressing Christianity. So, so we have to be careful that we don't backlash that with judgmentalism and criticism and, and harshness and, and something that will turn away people from the Lord. At the same time, we don't want to go to the other extreme and, and be people who have weak theology and passive convictions. So there has to be a firmness to our faith that's motivated by love, which is why this third detail stood out so strongly to me. Look back at verse 4. They left boldly. They left in the sight of all the Egyptians. Third, would you see, they left town while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn. Now that's the one when I studied this text that that just jumped off the page. Because I have to believe that there was a moment of clarity as they're walking out where the Israelites thought to themselves that would have been and should have been us, if not for the grace of God. Not condescending, not arrogant, not, well, we're better than you, but a complete level of humility. There was no, there was no posture of superiority. There was only a posture of humility. The only thing that protected us from doing that this morning, from bearing our dead, was the blood of the Lamb. The only thing that protected us was the grace of God. Now it says in the text that all the Egyptians watched them go. And I tried to imagine this week, what were the looks like? Think about this. This is not a small group of people. This is two million people. Times Square at New Year's Eve is like 800,000. So just picture that times like two and a half. Two million people walking out, and as they're doing that, all the Egyptians are burying their dead sons. The grief was widespread, the grief was palatable. The only houses that would have not been affected by this were the houses that didn't have sons, but most people in that time continued to have kids until they had a son so they could carry on the family name. So let's just assume that 90, 95% of the houses in Egypt were affected by this. And as the Jews are walking past, they're full of pain and sorrow and anguish, and there's probably some resentment and bitterness. But at the same time, there's a heavy dose of intimidation and fear at what God has done. And you know... Coupling with the last point, that really is a a picture of our daily lives and our ministry to the world. Look back at that one phrase. It's in, let me find it. It's in verse 4. While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn. As they're burying their dead, that's a reminder that the people who are all around us, listen now, who have not yet trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are still living under the control of sin, which means that they are walking among death all the time. Now, they're either sad and confused about that, or they are defiant and they're digging in. And that fact, as awful as it is, and we have no joy in that, that that people are walking in death, that is what motivates us to fulfill the Great Commission, because we have answers. We have the words of life. Remember, that was our word at the communion table. We have the words of life. You're holding in your hand the book of life. The words in here show eternal life. They show the path of life. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This is the word that gives illumination. This is the word that gives life. And you and I are responsible to give that to other people because we know that God is God. We know that Jesus is the only Savior. We know that He has the power to deliver us. So we've got to tell people because they're burying their dead. They're living in death. Day after day after day. This is why depression's at an all-time high. It's why suicide's at an all-time high. It's why people are cutting themselves and harming themselves. It's why people are getting divorced. It's why people are in complete misery. It's why there's so much uh, confusion and, and disorder in our country and in the world right now. It's not because of politicians. It's because people are constantly burying their dead. They're living in death. And they don't have to live that way. Now the Lord, let's get to the last point. The Lord proves his saving power at the Passover. Go back to verse 3. On the next day after the Passover. After he had delivered his people. But look at that last phrase. Because we have to deal with that last phrase. In verse 4. He had struck down the Egyptian sons. And he had executed judgment on the Egyptian gods. As they're burying their dead, they also had been working over the last weeks to try to restore their gods. Because God had destroyed all of their gods. He had shown them to be completely powerless. All that they had relied on, all their source of quote-unquote strength and wisdom, it had been devastated. And that had been unmistakably demonstrated. Because during the ten plagues, God had devalued every one of the main Egyptian gods. He had degraded them. He had debased them. He had shown them to be completely worthless. And, and it's interesting. I never knew this till this week. God had directly and specifically taken on each one specifically to who they were to show his power and his authority over them. So at the risk of completely boring you, let me tell you how he did that. The plague of the blood, uh, the Nile turning into blood, destroyed Happy, the Egyptian god of the Nile. The plague of frogs disproved Heket, the Egyptian goddess of fertility who had the head of a frog. We don't know why. I don't really want to know why. The plague of lice disproved Gap, or Geb, excuse me, the Egyptian god of the dust of the earth. The plague of flies disproved Kepri, the Egyptian god of creation and rebirth who had the head of a fly. The plague of dying cattle disproved Hathor, the Egyptian goddess of love, who had the head of a cow. Because when you think of love, you think of a cow, right? (laughs) The plague of boils disproved Isis, the Egyptian goddess of medicine and peace. The plague of hail disproved Seth, the Egyptian god of storms and disorder. The plague of locusts disproved Nut, the Egyptian goddess of the sky. The plague of darkness disproved Ra, who was the most important Egyptian god, the god of the sun. And, of course, the death of the firstborn Egyptian sons disproved all the gods because they had no power to stop it. Now, the Egyptians made the connection. God had discredited and disproved every one of them, and yet during each of these plagues, the Jews were not touched. They weren't affected at all. The Egyptian gods were destroyed. They're still cleaning them up when the firstborn son dies. So while their gods are in shambles on the ground, while they've all been disproven, now the firstborn son of every household is dead, and they're burying the dead. They're burying the sons, and the Israelites are walking out in freedom completely untouched. Tell me you don't get that picture. Tell me if you're an Egyptian, you're not going, wait a second. We're suffering through pain and misery and death and they're walking out free. Two million former Jewish slaves now walking out of town. You know, we can, as believers, either get discouraged by the ground that the enemy seems to be gaining in our culture or we can be the children of the one who's already secured the victory. I find myself getting discouraged some days as I look around and I read and I study and I think, man, this world is just not going in the right direction. And that pain and that suffering and that bondage is all around us. And that had been the Israelites' life until they cried out to the Lord for mercy and God delivered them right away. And now they're in freedom and they're in confidence, and they're living in the evidence of God's power and God's promise, and they're going toward His blessing. Now, you would think, after something that profound, that the Israelites would have been faithful. But instead of remembering Numbers 33, 3, and 4, when they got out in the wilderness, they went back to their former life, and they started to doubt and question and rebel, and defy God so what happens as they're in the wilderness they experience death every single day they're back in the bondage of wandering knowing they're not in the center of God's will knowing they're in a delay holding pattern watching every day as as their families die just, just what they had experienced in Egypt. You would think the memories would be so profound as they walked out and saw the Egyptians burying their dead. You would think that they would say, we never want to go back to that. And yet as soon as they got in the wilderness, they started to doubt God. And they started to see even the profound example of how God destroyed their God that they built at Sinai. Now, here's why I think this happened. I believe this is true. Because Israel had one significant problem. They never left Egypt behind. When things got challenging in the wilderness... And they needed to trust the Lord and obey his word. Instead of doing that, they panicked. And they started to feel sorry for themselves. And they refused to trust him. It got so bad that at one point they tried to kill Moses. And when they couldn't do that, they said, we want to go back. If only we could go back. Why can't we go back? Why why do we have to be out here in this miserable wilderness following that cloud that has God's presence? Instead of doing that, let's return to Egypt. Any of those statements sound familiar? Because those are the statements of weak faith. Weak faith manifests itself in fear and discouragement and defeat. And when we start reveling into fear and discouragement and defeat, it leads to doubt and disobedience and a return to self-sufficiency, thinking that somehow our ways better, that if we could just go back to our old life, that that would be so much better. But listen, we just celebrate it. We've been delivered, right? So we need to leave Egypt behind. We need to leave Egypt behind. So what does that mean, Paul? What what does that phrase mean? Well, let me give you five practical ways that we can do this. I'll be quick. What are five ways, five steps that we can take away from pain, away from bondage, away from difficulty, away from the captivity of our past, so we can move forward? Because God never wanted Israel to wander. He wanted them to go into the joy and the leading of the Lord with his presence along with them so he could open up the promised land of them. Listen, how many know the past can have a very powerful pull on us? Certain things in our past just continue to, to grab us and control us and hinder us. And if we hold onto them too long, they start to stunt our relationship with the Lord. Think about just the weight of all your sins and my sins. Are you freed this morning? I mean, seriously, are you freed from sin's control? Are you freed from its misery? Is that your past life? Because Jesus has cleansed you and saved you. And you can say without a doubt, I am redeemed. Because if not, you need to do that right now. Or think about the most significant hurt from your past. Or or maybe there's two or three or five. Would you say you're over them? Or do they continue to just draw you down? God says, I can heal you from that. I can deliver you from that. I'll show you grace and mercy and help. Now, if the answer to either of those questions is no, you need to leave Egypt behind. Because Egypt is a place of imprisonment and bondage. And Jesus Christ died and rose again to free us from that. Why would we want to hold on to those things when he doesn't do that with us? So let me give you quickly five quick steps that we can leave Egypt behind. Number one, leaving Egypt behind happens when we remember with gratitude the Lord's deliverance and protection. It all starts with praise, it all starts with gratitude. It dumbfounds me, and I've said this before at the risk of annoying you how could they forget that first Passover? How could they forget the Red Sea? How could they forget the pillar of fire and smoke? How could they forget the manna and the quail and the water from the rock? How could they forget Sinai? How could they forget God's presence filling the tabernacle in their sight? They could see the manifest presence of God coming down after they had heard his voice at Sinai. How could they forget? Every one of those things, just one of those things would have been overwhelmingly convincing. But then I got very convicted as I wrote that down, because how quickly every day do I forget the empty cross? How quickly every day do I forget the empty tomb, and I start to drift and doubt and complain and fail to be grateful? How quickly does that happen to us? We have to be very intentional Listen now, we have to be very intentional every day to be grateful for his grace. Every morning when we draw that first breath that's conscious, Lord, thank you for today. Before we jump on our phone, before we grab the coffee, before we get in the shower, Lord, thank you that I have breath today. Thank you that I get to be in your presence today. Thank you for your grace Because I know without your grace today, I am walking in death. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done. You know what that does? That keeps us humble. That causes us to die to self and to trust him. So the first thing we need to do is remember with gratitude the Lord's deliverance and protection. Second, leaving Egypt behind happens when we recognize the inadequacy of false gods. Recognize the inadequacy of false gods. Every day the enemy is presenting alternatives. Every day, the enemy is giving us other options besides the Lord, and he's tempting us to follow them instead of the one who saved us. But let me tell you, every one of them is a fraud. Just like God directly challenged and devalued the ten gods of Egypt, every option other than Jesus Christ is fraudulent and destructive. So when we think we should follow another God, when we think we should put priority on something other than Jesus, when we think we know better and we have more wisdom and God has not been right and God is not taking care of me and he doesn't seem to be leading me and he's not answering my prayers, and on and on and on and on we go. That, that's just a false narrative. And the sooner we recognize that anything and anyone other than the Lord is inadequate to bring us strength and comfort and joy and peace, the better off we'll be. Third, leaving Egypt behind happens when we resist going back to our old sinful life. We have to resist it. You hear that word resist because it is an active, intentional, determined action driven by conviction. You know, right now there's this little resistance movement going on in our country because so many people hate the president. And they're having their little rallies and doing their little things and all that. But listen, there needs to be a resistant movement in the church, there needs to be a resistant movement in families. That we would resist temptation. That we would resist the old life. That we would resist hesitancy. That we would put off sin. Because every day, it seems like there's more compromise among believers. Every day, it seems like there's more embrace of worldliness among believers. Because for some reason, we still want to hang out in Egypt. And I'm guilty of it. You're guilty of it. But that doesn't mean we have to continue to be guilty of it. We need to start resisting. We need to start being stronger in our, in our pushing back against sin, against the old life, against cultural change. Because, listen, we are not going to stop it if we don't. It is happening far more rapidly even than I thought it would. And there's not long until it really becomes something where we have no freedom left. So we have to resist, first of all, all, in our own lives, going back to our old life. Number four, leaving Egypt behind happens when we release the burden of past injuries and pain. We have to release the burden of past injuries and pain. Listen, some of us are genuinely stuck because we cannot let go of an offense, We are still dwelling on it. There's some heartache. There's some trauma. There's some offense. And we cannot let go of it. We don't want to let go of it. There's some kind of comfort, some weird catharsis in it. And we're just stuck with it. People have done things to us. They've been mean to us. And we will not move past it. Listen, it does not really matter whether it was fair or justified. It's in the past. There is not much you can do to change it now. So if you're holding on to it, the only one that's being hurt is you. Because it is producing self-pity, it's producing anger, it's producing a lack of forgiveness. And there's no way self-pity, anger, and a lack of forgiveness are anything other than sin. So we have got to release it. We've got to put it at the feet of the Lord, our Savior, who has forgiven us and cleansed us of all our sins, and we have to say, God, this is my old life. I have to turn away from it. Now, if it's a matter of your sin, that's a different issue. But if it's in a matter of an offense, you've got to let it go because it's wearing you down. Last one, leaving Egypt behind happens when we rely on the Lord to always lead us to victory. And how many know he has secured victory for us? We are overcomers. We're victorious. God has done all that through Jesus Christ. And we are called to live in victory. How many times as a believer are you not living in victory? Well, yeah, Paul, I know. you don't know what's going on in my life, and, and there's a lot happening, and I'm struggling. And I get that. I, I've been there. Trust me. Well, you know, I just I don't really feel God's presence right now. Are you in his presence? Well, when I pray, I don't really hear the Lord. How often are you praying? I'm not really, I'm not really getting fed. Well, why? How many Bibles do you own? See, we tend to fall back into that, well, I don't know, I know, yeah, praise Jesus and the communion table, and that's wonderful, and Easter and all that, but I don't know, it snowed last week, and it's May, and I, I don't know. I just, Listen, we ever live in victory, or we don't. But God has secured victory for us, and we have his Holy Spirit, and he indwells us, If we're going to wander back to our old life, guess what? There's not going to be any victory. But if we walk with Jesus Christ, if we trust him, if we walk in humility and dependence, guess what? We're going to have victory. So Paul says in Philippians 3, we need to forget what is behind. We need to put that in the past. And we need to reach forward to the prize of the upward calling through Christ Jesus. Because he is the author and finisher of our faith. And he's the one who gives us victory. In just a minute, we're going to have an opportunity to do that. We're going to have a time. We're going to sing a song, and I'm just going to leave the altar open. You can come up. You can stand before the Lord. There's something that you need to release. Maybe it's sin. Maybe you are in habitual sin. You, nobody knows it. Nobody's found out yet, but you are stuck. I mean, you're really, this is, this is an issue. Or maybe there's a hurt and a defense in the past that you have not let go of, and it still stings, and it still feels fresh. But listen, God can give you victory over that. So I don't know if anybody would come up. Maybe nobody comes up. Maybe 100 people come up. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Because it's just between you and the Lord at this point. So we're going to sing a couple choruses of the song, Offering Annie, Would You Come Up? And the altar's just going to be open. And then we'll go have fellowship. But if you need deliverance this morning, you need joy before the Lord, Just bring it to him.